I'm Andy Castroneves, and you need more front wings. by my co-editor, Paul Dalby, and we are pleased also to be joined later on in the show by Luca Filippi, who drove his first IndyCar race with Brian Herter Autosport this past weekend at the Honda Indy 200 at Mid-Ohio. And, of course, we are here tonight to... Um, to recap with all of you the uh, the Honda Indy 200, which had a number of changes this year, one of the key ones being that Scott Dixon didn't win, which is one that we did not see coming. However, it was one of his teammates that ended up uh, taking the victory, Charlie Kimball. Um, and by the way, all drivers who would like to participate in the More Front Wing podcast, because uh, they may have noticed that people who speak to us on the podcast tend to do well in their future endeavors. The lineup forms to the left. <laughs> We have the opposite effect of the IndyCar 36. Right, it seems so. Yeah, not that we're bragging or anything, but uh, but please, we, we are happy to provide our phone number to any PR reps who might want to give us a call. <laughs> anyway, very, very happy to see Charlie Kimball get his first win. That is a major coup for the Novo Nordisk Chip Ganassi Racing crew. Keeps Chip Ganassi Racing um, four in a row now, and uh, very promising looking for getting into number five, coming into the uh, GoPro Grand Prix of Sonoma. Did you see this one coming at all, Paul? No. No, I I would have put Charlie at about a tenth or eleventh driver for of my pick to win this weekend. Would not have guessed that. So um, it's just uh, really interesting to see that he he told us last week that uh, he felt that it was going to take a perfect weekend to to get this all put together, and yet he had pretty much the opposite of a perfect weekend. It was really. Um, quite a feat to see that team thrash from the time that Charlie Kimball put that that car um, into I now I'm having I'm struggling to remember exactly how that incident went in the uh, the morning practice session on Saturday I do know that they didn't have to change the engine but they did have to go to the backup because he oh that's right he backed it into the tires in turn one he did it pretty hard too um pretty much tore up the, the wing was an absolute write-off he pretty much tore up all of the rear suspension as well so what and i think it the damage went back as far as the the rear of the side pods so um i think that they decided that they they needed to uh go to the backup car and uh that was a a full-on thrash um there were people in that garage from all three teams uh, just uh, working to get the engine put into the backup car and get everything in place the setup done uh, Charlie had a few really interesting comments in the post-race press conference where he, he said that there wasn't even really room for him to be there. He was trying to be there and be supportive while everybody was working on getting the, the car ready, and, and he just couldn't because there was nowhere for him to stand. <laughs> and uh, But they got it done. They got him in for qualifying. He qualified well, extremely well, all, all told. Um, he came at, he went out fast right out of the gate and uh and uh, just kept that pace up for the rest of the weekend and uh, just had that that fantastic result that uh, that everybody knew was would come eventually but maybe a little sooner than some people might have predicted and um 
maybe maybe a bit of a surprising venue for it, given that Charlie has he's got quite a bit of indie lights experience here, but he uh, he did have that injury last year that kept him out of the running um, when he broke his hand in the in the pre Mid Ohio Test last year and wasn't able to participate in the race. So uh, definitely um, very interesting result all around and. Um, it was it was a great deal to do with the the fact that the team just made the right call on the strategy and then Charlie was able to capitalize on it and that's really where some of the uh, not not all-time great wins but where some of the sort of classic wins have come from in IndyCar history. And you kind of have to wonder too you talked about how it was really all hands on deck from the within the Ganassi umbrella you know, it really shows how much different the mentality and the the organizational structure is in that in the Ganassi Racing um, team. There, would we have seen last year or the year before seen the Target guys in with the G2 guys thrashing away to make sure that, that got prepped? I don't know that we would have necessarily seen that in the last couple of years. It, it was always very, very. Uh, separate entities. There was the target guys and there were the G2 guys. And there didn't seem to be a whole lot of mixing and interaction between the two. But this year we've really seen that team come together. And though, you know, maybe they're not from a a post-race or post-session debrief, I guess we've heard before that they don't necessarily debrief together. But I think we saw this weekend really how much that team has come together as a single organization in our are really looking out for the good of Chip Ganassi Racing, not necessarily just the target side of Chip Ganassi Racing. Well, to to comment on that to begin with, Charlie was very quick to say in the press conference that there were as many red shirts as there were orange shirts in that mm-hmm. garage, and I saw that with my own eyes. That was absolutely the truth. There were people clearly from all corners of the organization working on getting that car ready on Saturday to get out in time for qualifying. But to your point about um, the the G2 cars versus the target cars last year, my counterpoint to that would be that this year there there are only the three cars. Whereas last year, the target guys might have simply said, okay, well, there are enough guys with the two teams being there on the, on the G2 side that we shouldn't need to get involved. Whereas this year, if there were no other teams for Novo Nordis to call on. And so it made more sense for the target guys to, to get involved in that sense. If there does end up being a fourth car again next year, would we see the same situation? That's the, that's the more pertinent question in my mind. And I don't know that the answer to that would necessarily be that there would be as much involvement from the target side, either from a lack of need or a a lack of desire. I'm not sure. I mean, this is entirely speculation, obviously. Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that either, but I, I would think, you know, seeing the teamwork and how, you know, the the collaboration has really seemed to elevate Charlie Kimball and that G2 squad, I think Chip Ganassi would have a vested interest in seeing those two organizations continue to work together. And now that you're seeing the result, now that you're seeing the target guys get back to the level that we expect, um, I don't think one would be able to say that helping out the G2 side is really being a distraction to that team. You know, the, but it's right only now, one it's, car. It is. When it you, is, when you right. add in a second car, it changes the dynamic completely. That's the point that I'm trying to make. No matter who's in that second car. I mean, we all know that, that Graham didn't necessarily mesh 
perfectly with the rest of the organization last year. But that's not to say that if they found somebody for next year who did blend in extremely well, that they wouldn't run into the same problem where there's just a lot of resources and a lot of data and, and, and that sort of thing. It needs to be covered from four cars. And so they just don't see a need to cross over that much. Yeah, you wonder, though, you know, does the structure of working as two two-car teams, does that make each of those better than working as a single four-car team, as we've seen with, with Andretti Autosport? I was about to make the same point. This sort of, yeah, you could, you could do a study in that, I suppose. We, we'd need a little bit more time of the, the separate entities to see how that would play out. But it's, I don't know. I, I, could, I see some potential for, for the, uh, the Novo Nordisk crew. Although now that, that they've had a bit more time to sort of gel and, and come into their own. Perhaps there's not as much risk of them being left behind as there might have been in the past. Yep. One of those things we will look forward to for next year, because I think that we are very likely to see a fourth Ganassi car return. So I think uh, I, I think whether that's Briscoe or whether that's Canaan or, or some of the other names that have been kicked around for that fourth seat, and, you know, I th- also think that, that that fourth seat, when it was originally conceived with Graham Rahal, somewhat came around just from the fact that Rahal had, had some sponsorship. You know, maybe those weren't the, what you want to call the, the, the typical uh, Chip Ganassi drivers who usually would be at the very top of their game and the guys that you would think are the superstars. The You know, right now, obviously, Dixon and Franchitti, and you look back through the lineage, whether you look at Vassar, Zanardi, Montoya, some of those other guys, Dan Weldon. When I, I don't see that fourth car next year necessarily being a, a, a B-list driver, if you will. I think if Ganassi's going to run that car, he's going to run that car with someone who's capable and, and likely to win right away. Again, whether that's Briscoe or Canaan, who are the seem to be the two leading candidates for that. I don't see... I would like to think that that Chip would want to have that guy integrated in as a full organization again, not as a separate entity, as as was the case when you had Charlie and Graham, who were really unproven quantities at that time. You bring in a, a third superstar level driver. I think four is the way that you'll see Ganassi go, and you'll see that operate as a single team. Well. Only time will tell that, I suppose. <laughs> um, let's look at another aspect of, uh, of this Ganassi, Chip Ganassi Racing involvement in this weekend in that Chip Ganassi Racing was one of the very big fish that, that made the wrong call on strategy. The target side of this, excuse me, um, they just made the wrong call on strategy in the, in this race and, uh, both Scott and uh, Dario, their teams, made the decision partway through the event to um, to change strategy. They had started out with the uh, the two stop strategy, the same strategy that Ryan Hunter Ray and Will Power saw through to the end, and realized partway through that they were losing too much time on the on the cars that had more fuel and were uh, were able to really push and and uh, made the decision to to. Um, to go back to this, the three-stop strategy and uh, actually managed to put Dario on the podium by making that decision, but still not the usual form that we expect from from a team at the caliber of uh, tar- tar- Target Chip Ganassi. And it was fascinating to see, despite the uh, the five laps being added 
to this race um, from the IndyCar's dis- preseason decision to lengthen certain races to try to prevent fuel mileage racing, that enough gains had been made by the engine manufacturers in in, uh, in managing fuel economy to make this even going to two stops uh, even a somewhat considerable option. And uh, to see it sort of fall apart for these two teams partway through was uh, was very interesting in my opinion. And you kind of have to wonder too when 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 I think Frank Cutie hadn't he elected to go three stops all along and was it or did both of them plan no, I, originally I, to do two? I, I recall Dario saying in the post race that he and Dixon had both been on the two stop strategy and aborted. Okay. Yeah, you almost wonder once you go down that path of going two stops. You know, at what point do you almost get too far that changing midstream really uh, – you go too far to come back, really? Well, I, I guess th- that since they put Dick, uh, Dario on the podium that they came back at just about the right time. Yeah, well, Dixon didn't, though. I mean, and I think Dixon at one point even alluded to, you know, maybe we should have just stayed with the two – if we didn't change earlier, maybe we should have just stayed with the two stops and, and kind of rode it out to the end. Mm. One of the things that I had – trouble kind of following on maybe you as more of the road racing uh expert than than i am i was really surprised that the guys who were on two stops from the beginning namely ryan hunter ray um and who would have been behind power uh, power Power. actually this is another point that i have on our on our checklist to talk about tonight but power actually finished just ahead of ryan hunter ray so so willpower actually won the two-stop battle so uh Kudos to Will Power. You actually did win something this year. There you go. <laughs> what surprised me, though, is if those guys were conserving fuel f- from the beginning, trying to make sure they had to get all the way to lap 30 to make it on a, on a two-stop race, yet when they came in, even when the first guy started to peel off, you know, forget Hinchcliffe, who who pitted like a lap Eight. nine. I, yeah. I think the rest of them were going what, about 18 to 20, 22, somewhere in that ballpark? I feel like um, the predicted pit window was some was around lap 12 for the three stoppers, and for most of them it ended up being a little bit later than that. But I feel like it was more like around lap 15 or so. But what well, I guess what I was surprised and what kind of threw me off watching the race is I would have expected them to be faster in the beginning. You know, even when the guys who were trying to stretch and conserve their fuel they were still leading by a, a fairly healthy margin. You know, they were still running faster than the guys who were, you know, theoretically the hares and not the tortoises. Well, we don't know exactly how much those guys thought that they needed to conserve fuel at the beginning, right? And the other factor that that, that comes into play in this story is the tires, because we saw in the early going that um, Marco was on the three-stop strategy, and he should have been fast, but he started on the blacks, and he just dropped like a stone in that first stint. He got past like three or four cars Mm -hmm. very, very quickly. And so that's another... Another point in the story that uh, that needs to come into play is that everybody was uh, trying to use reds for as long as as they could without sort of hampering their 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 strategy because the reds were clearly dominant in uh, in terms of performance this weekend, which is something that that we've asked for from Firestone many times. Uh, it could have maybe even been a little bit more this weekend, but it definitely came into play in terms of deciding how how things uh, played out. And I think that might be, that might have something to do with the way that, uh, that things went in the early going. 
Yeah, it could have. I I guess I just would have expected the guys who were on the three-stop race to take off and be much faster in that earlier stint. But even as they were... Well, and there's uh, also the fact that nobody can pass at Mid-Ohio. Yeah, we saw some passing there. Well, I some, mean, I, it, but not a lot. I mean, yeah, it's not I a... Could, I mean, last year's race was great. That's that's the thing that baffled me, is that last year's race had, had not tons of passing, but certainly more than we're used to seeing at Mid-Ohio. And then this year's, again... We, I think there was there was a little bit of passing. There was all the stuff on Marco, and there was there was some stuff here and there. But the only big one that we saw was that one late in the race between um, Kimball and Pagano, which we'll we'll get to in a minute. But it it didn't seem to be quite at the level that last year's was either. So can't have a barn burner every time, I guess. No, no. I was. I mean, that's the truth, but. And we certainly don't typically tend to expect one from Mid Ohio. This is the point where we typically we usually start the um, the lecture about how this is the Honda Company picnic, and you really have to be there and and all that stuff. But well, speaking of which, you were there. I was. What was, what was the environment like there? Was uh, Sands ALMS this year? It was definitely uh, there was there was a definite um, note in the air of the fact that ALMS was not there. Uh, it seemed to have an effect on the camping sales. There was uh, there were fewer people in the general camping area. There were some open RV spots here and there that typically would not have been open. Um, but that seemed to be made up from the fact that there's there was a significant race day crowd still. The S's were packed on race day. There were still the people that, that come at 7 o'clock in the morning to claim their spot under the trees up high up in the S's and all that stuff that you're used to seeing at Mid-Ohio. There just didn't seem to be as many people hanging out for the full weekend as uh, as we're used to seeing. And so you can't help but wonder if maybe the side effect of not having the ALMS there was that there was some loss in terms of people not wanting to be there as long for the weekend. There might have been more of a let's see what the weather does, walk up on, on race day kind of a crowd than there than there has been in the past. So not not disastrous. There was a strong, strong crowd. Um, I didn't actually get out too much on Saturday, but my, my fiance, Jacob, and uh, my daughter came down with me and they spent much of the day on Saturday in the asses. And Jacob said that he felt like for a non race day Saturday, cause we can call that those now, I guess, um, mm. it was a pretty strong crowd. Um, but he didn't really, he didn't have a point of reference for, for, um, an ALMS race day in the past kind of, kind of thing, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was strong enough that, that he wasn't worried, but it wasn't up to the level that it would have been having a sports car race as, as was the case in the past, but mm-hmm. certainly still sustainable by, by current IndyCar event standards. Absolutely. Okay. Good. Yeah. Uh, so let's take a closer look at that pass that we that we just talked about. Um, the one where I think what happened was Pagano. And we're talking about the the late race, sort of 68 laps in, I think it was, uh, where Pagano had was in the lead. And am I getting this right? He was in the lead. He needed to pit. And he had just Campbell, come out of the pits. 
No, yeah, yeah, right. But he, he needed to pit. Kimball was about 23 and change seconds behind him. And so the question, the big question was, what is the pit delta at Mid-Ohio and where is he going to come out relative to Kimball? Uh, and then he pitted and he came out directly in front of him. And then what transpired from there appeared to be that it was, it was Pagano's outlap. And so he wasn't fully up to speed. And then uh, Kimball just made that fantastic move to get by him. What did you see? Well, EJ Viso kind of and played Viso, in there. yes, played a huge role in that. Yes, which Pagano yeah. actually uh, mentioned in the in the post race presser as did well. He? Yes, he he was uh, he did voice some displeasure at Viso's role in that. Well, of course, because he lost. <laughs> I mean, you know, if Viso happens to he slips by Viso and Viso holds up Kimbo, well, I don't see Pagano complaining all of a sudden. Right. Um, you know, Viso, I don't think he really did anything wrong in that situation. I think he was just there, and I don't think he raced one any different than he raced the other. So I I had no problem with Viso in that situation. But I should, he, oh, but we've had this argument before. Is he supposed to be racing anybody? I don't think he necessarily was racing anyone. Pagano had just come out of the pits. What is is Viso supposed to just pull over for somebody coming out of the pits? If I don't know. Did Viso come out? I guess him I don't, and he's not. Worried about Pagano's just coming back, out of the pits, probably. though. I, I don't see. I don't. I don't. I don't recall if Viso was coming out of the pits, so maybe Viso was coming out. I, I, I no, Viso was not coming out at the same time. He was already out. So he was with Kimball then, right? Essentially, right. Anyway, I, I, I don't see Viso having the need to just pull over and and let everyone else by. I I think so long as he races them both fairly. If he lets one by, he lets the other by. If he races one, he races the other. And in this case, Pagano just happened to catch him at you know the absolute worst place he could have, being right at the entrance to turn two there in the keyhole. Kimball was coming one way or the other. Kimball had warm tires. He Pagano was on cold tires right out of the pits. How much Viso Viso certainly didn't help Pagano. There's no doubt about that. He kind of blocked him a hair going into the keyhole, but. Um, I don't know. I, I didn't necessarily have too much of a problem with Viso in that situation. He, he's out there. He's racing. I didn't think he did anything particularly dirty. He just happened to be at that place. I don't expect him to have to pull over just because the, the leader who's coming out of the pits is in his vicinity. And I've maintained that all along. <laughs> well, that's an argument that we've had before and that perhaps we should save for another day. So another interesting point about this race was the fact that it was the second caution-free race in a row at Mid-Ohio. What does that say about Mid-Ohio to you, Paul? It tells me that either the drivers are getting smarter, the race was a little bit more stretched out, or one of those two things. <laughs> or one of those two things. Eloquent. Very well put. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know what to make of that. You know, we, we go through these stretches where, you know, I guess more on the street courses than anything else where, you know, they can't go through a turn together without running into each other. Um, they were all on their best behavior here. The race did get stretched out fairly quickly. And, you know, and of course, like mid-Ohio, once it gets stretched out, it's not coming back together, the field that is. Um You know, I've heard the argument that maybe that means the cars are too hard to drive. I don't know that I necessarily too buy hard that. To drive. I'm sorry, not too hard, too easy to drive. Mm. Yeah. 
Uh, I don't know that I buy that argument that, you know, just because you have a caution-free race, the cars are too easy to drive. Um, you know, if it was too, they were, if they were too easy to drive, you'd have everyone running up front and passing each other for the lead, I think. Um, it's just one of those events where the, the drivers were on their good behavior, I guess, and, you know, you didn't have any unfortunate incidents where you, know, you get a half a car or a half a tire off and you suddenly go sliding across the grass. Um, I don't know what to think of it beyond that. I hadn't given it really much thought. I, I, I thought it was a, a clean race. I, I don't like to see the field artificially brought back together um, just because, you know, there, there's a, a caution of some sort and there was enough strategy still to keep the race interesting. I thought that it wasn't, necessary that a yellow needed to be thrown just to add some excitement back into it well it makes sort of an interesting study in in the cultural difference between a street race and a road race right because at a street race you expect a yellow and you expect carnage and so it seems as though you sort of get into that mode a little bit easier where in toronto in race two i think it was we had a very long green flag period and everybody's kind of going hello mm-hmm. When is this going to happen? Whereas it, when you go to a permanent road course like Mid Ohio, where there are lots of long runoffs and lots of places for cars to go if they run into trouble, like for example Tony Canon, um, and it sort of almost be, turns into that that international mentality of road races should go green for as much as possible, which is always sort of the goal of 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 um, racing on permanent road courses in much of the world. So to me, it's very interesting to get those two different types of races in the same series and uh, to be able to see that and compare that and compare how people react to that because uh, it's very it's a very interesting um, thing to see when people react differently to, to the, the idea of a phantom yellow at a road course as opposed to all the carnage at a street course and, uh, and everything that comes along with all that. So um, I think it's interesting. I think it does, it displays a little bit the fact that the drivers know that there's not a lot of opportunity to pass at mid Ohio. So nobody was trying anything because they knew it wasn't going to end well, um, which is sort of unfortunate because everybody likes to see passing. But uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think sort of, the typical road course race, which isn't always everybody's favorite, but hey, we can't all have our favorites all the time. And if it's not your favorite, don't bother t- tuning in for Sonoma either, because it's going to be a lot of the same. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Hmm. So um, let's talk a little bit about some drivers, or one driver in particular, I guess, who had a very strong weekend at uh, Mid-Ohio, and that includes the the test day that came a couple days before. And uh, we were, of course, referring to Luca Filippi, who um, sat in for Alex Tagliani, who um, unfortunately lost his seat at Brian Hart Autosport leading into this weekend, when the team finally decided that uh, they had grown exasperated with the uh, the difficult performances that had uh, that had come previously. Everybody seems to have all around been happy with Luca's performance, including Luca, who we had the opportunity to speak with um, 
very recently on uh, on how he felt his weekend went, what uh, what he felt about the uh, IndyCar series and working with Brian Hart at Autosport on his first outing, and some of his thoughts on uh, what makes an IndyCar a little bit different to drive or similar to drive to uh, GP2 cars that he's used to driving in Europe. And so let's give that interview an int- a listen right now. And I will warn you before we get started, though, that we had sort of an iffy cell phone connection because he was driving in Europe at the time that we had this call. So um, the, the audio quality is not spectacular. I do apologize for that, but it's uh, still an interesting listen. And so let's do that right now. Let's just start then, Luca, by talking about uh, your first weekend in IndyCar uh, and just your general impressions of how you felt after the uh, after the weekend was over and uh, what you thought of uh, of just participating in IndyCar for for the first time. Yeah, um, I took a long, long time to fall asleep. Really, <laughs> um, I was I was still so excited and. Even now, um, I'm starting to realize that finally I had the first IndyCar race, which is something that I, I dreamed about. I mean, since I was a young kid driving go-karts, and I'm, I've always been a big IndyCar fan, and finally I, I had a race, and it's amazing. From another point of view, I'm very happy because uh, it was my first weekend, and... Uh, in several um, situations were extremely fast and uh, on the other side I'm also a little bit sad because uh, we didn't achieve what uh, what we were able to achieve actually we we had that mistake in qualifying that it hurt a lot our performance right let's talk about that that incident in qualifying because that was probably the high point of your weekend when you had that lap that could have been fast enough to advance you through to the second round of the fast six, but then you caused the red flag and, and lost that time and ended up qualifying further back in the grid. Can you just sort of talk about um, the emotion around knowing that you had that speed so quickly on in, in your time in IndyCar, but then having it go away? Yes. Um, obviously, that was the key moment. First of all, we came to qualifying and we knew we were we were very competitive because on Friday we were very fast. We were P5 and uh, behind big, big names. And for for me personally, it was a uh, you know a fantastic moment, a great pleasure to be fifth in the timesheet in my first official day in an IndyCar, right behind uh, Frankidi and uh, Dixon and people like that. That was amazing. And we got to qualifying, and we knew we were able to to go through the quali and uh, and do well. And actually, is what uh, from a point of view we did because our P4 in Q1 it was it was good enough uh, to to get us for sure in a, in a potential top 10 or or even better. But uh, as you said, I made a mistake, and uh, unfortunately. I made it in the wrong moment of the weekend, and uh, causing that red flag, it cost me a lot, very much. And uh, I'm very upset with myself from that point of view because uh, I made a mistake in the wrong moment in in a lap that I wasn't even pushing so hard. It was just a you know a misfortune like that, but uh, that happens in motor racing. There's not much uh, 
I can do now about it. But uh, at least after qualifying, we we knew that uh, our performance was still there. Just by repeating the lap I had that was in my very first uh, run on the red tires, mm-hmm. we were able to, to go through the quali and, uh, and maybe even go in the fast six, I would say. I think, I think there was a potential there. From another point of view, you know, I, I, came, I came to my first weekend with uh, a lot of expectation, but at the same time, you know, it's always difficult to, to think about, um, you know, what I'm going to do. But I actually prefer to have a weekend like that where you prove your, uh, your performances and where the team proves that uh, their car is very fast and maybe make some mistakes rather than having a kind of a, you know, flat and uh, weekend, maybe a fine weekend, but with no high and no lows. Right. Um, let's talk a little bit about working with Brian Herta and his team, because I assume that Brian, having been a driver once himself, would have been pretty forgiving of, of that mistake that, that you made, uh, because no doubt he's been in that situation before. So uh, how did you find working with him and working with his team during your time there? Yeah, Brian was uh, incredibly nice to me since uh, I met him the very first time a couple of years ago. And at that, uh, at that time, he said to me that if one day he had the chance to give me a chance to try on, on an Indy car, he would have done it, and he did it. So uh, he, he really deserves uh, a lot of respect. He's a great guy. And um, actually, I felt great with him during the weekend. He never gave me any pressure. He was always very calm. He gave me a lot of uh, good and important advices. And even after that mistake, I was uh, clearly sad and clearly upset with myself. And he had uh, very nice words to me. He said, don't worry. Um, for this weekend, we just need to to learn and uh, make experience. So don't worry. Let's think about tomorrow. Let's finish the race and it will be fine. So I really enjoyed very much work with him. But I have to say working with everybody in the team because uh, there was a great atmosphere. I was I had a very warm welcome from everyone and I found also that technically the team is a very high profile. I enjoyed a lot working with Todd, that is the race engineer and uh, it would be it would be great to keep working with them. All of your driving career has been in Europe, um, and yes. so you're you're used to cars that are sort of similar to this, but uh, also quite different. So, can you compare this generation of IndyCar, your your first experience with it, with some of the other cars that you've raced in the past? Yes, from um, that point of view, um, it it can be quite similar to GP2 because uh, GP2 is also running Balcara chassis, so. Actually, also just sitting into the car with a cockpit position and uh, the pedals and those sorts of things, they are already quite similar. Also, the power is quite similar to the GP2 series, which is a car I know very well. Carbon brakes is something that I'm used to. So from this point of view, I felt I felt good from the very beginning. Um, where, you know, it took a a bit more time is because 
it's a slightly heavier open wheel car than all the others that I have driven so far. Obviously, the turbo engine is different than what I ever had because I never never driven a turbo engine before. And uh, and obviously, um, it's a slightly different type of racing. So I had many 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 things to learn, but there is one thing that in my career I've done many different many different things. Because okay, I did open wheels, but at the moment I'm also doing GT racing. I've de- I've done tire development. I've done development for Ferrari in the past uh, for the GT car. So basically, I always um, took any kind of uh, chance I had, any kind of experience uh, I got in my in my career. So all these different things they helped me to learn how to how to adapt. So this is a good thing because, uh, okay, the car was different. Many many things were not as uh, as I'm used to, but at least I I think I didn't do, didn't didn't take so much time to adapt myself. Right. Another aspect of the fact that you spent a lot of time in Europe is that a lot is made over in America of how open and how friendly um, American paddocks are, particularly the IndyCar paddock. Did you get that impression while you were here? And uh, and would you talk a little bit about what you felt was different? Actually, I really felt um, really felt good because uh, since the very beginning, I had a warm welcome from everyone in the paddock, from the drivers, from the teams from everyone, even from people that I've never met, they're coming to me and asking how I feel, uh, how I like the car, how I like the series. So I really enjoyed that aspect. That was really nice. And so a part of the, of the team that, as I said, were also fantastic to me, I would say also the, the environment all around were very friendly. But um, if I have to be honest as well, I think uh, also uh, performing well uh, on uh, on Friday, I think it was uh, a good help because every time you get to a new series, obviously, as you know, if you if you can be quite fast and quite good from the very beginning, actually, it's quite a good way to to start uh, a new a new challenge. So. From that point of view, I found uh, a very warm welcome from the media as well. So it was an incredible um, experience for me. Great. Uh, you would have known coming into the weekend that uh, part of your job was replacing Alex Sagliani, who has been in that uh, in that seat for a season and a half now and um, had not been performing to the point that the team was, was hoping for. Um, that's just obviously part of a driver's career is, uh, is just taking over when the need arises. But can you talk a little bit about the driver's mentality from your perspective of sitting down in a car from the first time knowing that that car was long-term somebody else's right before you got into it? Um, yeah, it's a good question, but uh, I have to say that I never really thought too much about it because, uh, as you say, it's something quite uh, quite normal uh, in everybody's career. Sometimes, uh, you know, it comes your turn. It doesn't matter too much uh, 
what is the reason and uh, who are you driving instead of or or these sorts of things. You just need to to do your best and uh, and as I always say, the biggest pressure always comes from myself because uh, you know as you say it can be you can feel the pressure of uh, a team that is changing a driver. You can feel the pressure of the new series. You can be at pressure of many things, but the biggest pressure I always have is mine. That because I'm being a racing driver, I I feel a lot of the competition and. I never really, you know, uh, accept bad results, so I really push myself to do well. So this is actually the biggest pressure I always have. Hmm. Um, again, about Tagliani, I, I never really had the chance to meet him, meet him uh, properly. Uh, just uh, met him once briefly and uh, a couple of years ago, and... He's a very, very known driver, and uh, he has the respect of everyone in the city. So, for sure, um, there is any, there is not personal between us. It's just, uh, you know, I don't think there should be any bad feeling about it. I, I really hope. So, from that point of view, uh, it's actually at the moment a situation that uh, I just deal on my side. If I have a chance to, again to jump on a car, I'll do it. And um, and from from the rest, uh, it's not really something that I'm that I'm thinking too much about. Right. So for the final question, obviously uh, you've made it very clear that your hope is to return to the IndyCar series in the near future. Um, and we have to assume that Brian was happy with your performance. Do you know at this stage whether we can expect to see you back for further races in 2013 confirmed, or, or is it still being worked out? Uh, no, not, nothing is confirmed at the moment. It would be a team decision. So the team will decide, Brian and his partners will decide based on different factors. And... Um, Whatever will happen, uh, I'm very grateful with all the team because uh, everything went uh, absolutely well for me and uh, I'm very grateful for the chance that I had. If uh, I'll have uh, the opportunity to race again during the season, it would be great because I'll, I'll, I'll get there with uh, more experience with the car and with the series and it will be fantastic. Uh, doesn't mean it would be the next race. It can be later on. It can be for next year. It's re- very hard to say. Uh, Brian knows that uh, I'm uh, available and I'm eager to jump back on the car. And he knows that. And uh, we will need to wait a bit longer. But uh, I'm, I'm with the team because uh, I have uh, I just have good feeling about everything happened so far. And... Uh, Whatever the team will decide, it uh, will be the, in the team's interest. Okay. That's great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. And uh, best of luck. We certainly do hope to see you back again so that we can um, track your performance as it improves through the IndyCar Series through this year and beyond. Yeah, it would be great. Thank <laughs> you so much. I All really right. appreciate that. Thank you, Luca.
an excellent chat with Luca Filippi and uh, certainly hope and expect that we'll see him back at Brian Herta Autosport or if not then maybe another team but I think Brian Herta was very happy with uh, with Luca's performance and uh, not would not be surprised to see him back in the car for some more races uh, toward the end of this year as Brian Herta considers his options for the 2014 season. Another driver who is within Brian Herta's sights and who we are fully expecting to see in the car for the race at Sonoma, although I don't believe that's confirmed at this point, is J.R. Hildebrand, who's looking for his uh, way back into the series after losing his ride at Panther Racing after the incident at Indianapolis earlier this year. And so I'd be very interested to see how J.R. does in uh, following the footsteps of uh, of Luca after his very strong debut at Mid Ohio, so go ahead, Paul. Oh, I was just going to say I think that's a, a natural fit with Brian and Jr. together. Um, you know, they, they just seem to have kind of similar backgrounds, brought up and uh, and raced a lot of the uh, the same type of. of, of of career coming up into the series and maybe even a little bit of the same kind of, I kind of think of them as very similar in how their careers have progressed. So I think it's a very natural fit to see Jr. there. Um, you would hope after, after the way he kind of had a very difficult start to the year that this would give him a good opportunity to rebound and show again, really what he can do, especially if it does happen at Sonoma that, it would be a good chance for him to show off a bit in front of his hometown crowd being from the uh, the Bay Area there as well. Exactly. Uh, speaking of Sonoma, an interesting point leading into that race is that the manufacturer standings, point standings, are tied at the moment, Honda and Chevrolet. And so if Honda does manage to get a win at Sonoma, which is certainly not outside the realm of possibility, then Honda could take the lead in the manufacturer standings. And um, I went through all of the statistics since the beginning of last year before we started uh, the show today and confirmed that, yes, it would, in fact, be the first time that Honda would have taken the lead in the manufacturer standings since competition returned to the series at the beginning of last year if they were to do that coming into or coming out of Sonoma next um, in three weeks, two weeks, two weeks time. So it seems like it's longer than that. <laughs> it's three weeks from in Ohio. So two yes, weeks there, from now. there you go. Yes. So, uh, just as I was going through the the stats, I found a couple of interesting points. Honda actually did come close to Chevrolet and around the time of Texas of last year. Um, and that was the race that Justin Wilson won last year. And then they went from there into, I believe it was Milwaukee and Ryan Hunter Ray won that race. And then Chevrolet just sort of took off from there. And, um, Chevrolet actually clinched the manufacturer's title last year at Sonoma because they had, uh, they had such a points lead at coming out of that race. But I mean, that being said, the season was one race or one weekend, excuse me, shorter, two races shorter, and uh, was finished halfway through September, as we recall, last year. And so um, this year we've got not only Sonoma and uh, Baltimore and Fontana to go, but also the doubleheader at Houston and uh, a little bit more time with much of the month of September, unfortunately. And let's not get started on that rant, um, mm -hmm. being being dead time for the IndyCar series uh, leading into its season finales. So... 
Um, but still, an interesting thing to see and uh, no doubt heartening for the people at Honda and uh, people um, on the, in the Honda camp, of course, singing the praises of the, the next generation engine, which seems to be bringing them a great deal more success than they've had since, since competition began. Now, that being said... It's interesting to see Honda's engine bringing their teams much more success than they've had recently, knowing that they're going to be making the change to the twin turbo next year. Um, and so how much of – is is that, in your opinion, Paul, an advantage or a disadvantage that they've, they've managed to find all this speed with a turbo that they're not going to be using in the 2014 season? I don't know. I don't know enough of the technical details and know what the engine – what that carryover between this structure and the dual structure, how much transfers from one to the other. But I was going to make that same point that you just did, that one of the one of the justifications given by IndyCar, for what it's worth, was that they were doing this to increase parity. Well, it seems like we've got pretty good parity right now. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can't ask for much more than, you know, seven, 14 races in, each manufacturer has has seven wins apiece. You look at this at the the point standings. You got Elio in first in a Chevrolet, and then Dixon in a Honda, and then Hunter Ray in a Chevrolet, and beyond that, I get fuzzy. I guess Marco's maybe. I think Marco's like, fourth and Simon's fifth. Yeah, so I mean, you, you look at the top five. You don't get a whole lot more even than three and two. Mm-hmm. So you know where this parity argument. I I guess I understand from a, a ability to have parity at all boost levels, but you know, yeah, it, it, it's, you wonder if, you know, now that, now that Ganassi has, is back on, on full power and we're seeing this, this resurgence of their team, if you will. And I hate to say that because we act like they've been gone for years. Um, but you see that what they've been able to do and, and catch up now that they have a, an engine that's on par with Chevrolet. And you wonder if this isn't when, the same situation when Ganassi got their Honda back in 2006, that that they had been forced to lean on their their chassis development so much just to even be in the same ballpark that when they get on par with that same horsepower engine, if they're even going to be touchable in the next year or so, while the Chevrolet teams may have to play catch-up a little bit. Well, the other side of the argument that I was just thinking of while you were talking about this is we're seeing Honda be very strong now, and, I mean, they swept the podium at Pocono, so maybe that answers this question. You tell me. But despite the strength that we're seeing from them at Toronto and at Mid-Ohio, are we going to see that same strength at Indianapolis next year? Because, of course, all of this engine development, people will talk about the series championship until their faces turn blue, but all of this is, is really centered on getting that win in Indianapolis. And so is it possible that this current engine would have enough to get the win in Indianapolis because we all know that that's really what counts. You know, they won at Pocono not because they were on par with the horsepower of Chevrolet. They kind of got kicked to the curb all race long until it became apparent that that Marco and and the other Chevrolet guys weren't going to have enough fuel to get to the end. Mm. Um, You know, if you had seen the Ganassi trio, you know, running up front all three of them in the top three positions all day long, then yeah, I'd say that you know, they certainly have that horsepower advantage. I think Chevrolet still has that horsepower advantage because, you know, given an unlimited fuel tank, I think we would have seen Marco just run away with that race. Um, 
I don't know that we'll really see a good horsepower comparison until we get to Fontana this year. Uh, Baltimore, you're not going to really see that much from a from a who has strictly more horsepower standpoint. There aren't a whole lot of long straightaways there. Sonoma, um, I, there are a few places, I guess, where you can stretch your legs there. But again, it's much more of a, a technical track. That's, that's a driver's first track. Uh, Houston, I, I, I really don't know. I don't know enough about that circuit. I'm assuming since it's running in a parking lot, it's probably not a whole lot of a horsepower track. Again, much more handling. But when we get to Fontana again at the end of the year, um, I think we'll see then how much Honda has really caught up um, with the horsepower edge since Pocono. Last year, they were almost on point with, with Chevrolet. They ran very well. Dario ran very well in that race. Sato ran very well. Uh, there were a few other Honda guys that uh, that also Tagliani ran very well last year in a Honda at that race. Um, so we'll we'll have a good chance to see if they've caught back to Chevrolet with their horsepower disadvantage from earlier in the year because they certainly were well behind the ball at Indianapolis. They seem to have caught up somewhat at Pocono, uh, but now it's hard to say exactly where they are. And then we'll spend all of next year playing what might have been as we see what happens when they switch to the twin turbo formula. Um, so let's switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about some of the rumors that are happening with the 2014 schedule. Usually mid-Ohio is when I start sort of poking around and um, looking for, looking to start asking people some questions about what the plan is for the schedule for the following year. And um, often that has played out well, but this year I got, I got pushed back and told that um, nobody's ready to talk about it yet. So... Um, it's going to be a couple of weeks before any comment is even really going to start to be made by IndyCar from the sound of things. But some things that we do know from uh, from doing a little bit of side reading, apparently it's a very strong possibility, um, and this has gone a little bit beyond mere rumor, that uh, Brazil is not going to come off for 2014. Um, not and going to come off as in it's not going to happen? or it's not, not going to happen. It's really? not going to happen at all. Um, I, I'm hearing that um, the band TV has already started releasing staff as a result of this. I'm hearing that uh, that interest in in funding IndyCar, not only from the race perspective, but also from the Brazilian drivers' perspective, is driving up is drying up somewhat. Um, and so it's it's looking like a little bit of a dire situation. As so we may not be in South America at all next year. Pretty surprising. I was I was a bit surprised to to hear that because uh, I had got somewhat the impression that things may not have been as strong this year as they had been in the past. But I didn't think that it was so bad that that it might drop off the schedule entirely. That being said, it's a fair inconvenience for for people on the American side to go down to Brazil and the money really does need to be there to make it worthwhile. And it's a fair inconvenience for the city of Sao Paulo as well because they have to shut down half of one of their biggest freeways for for the weekend and uh, we all know how that's ended up in the past. So um, still somewhat surprising and leaving IndyCar with having to find another race to put on their schedule to meet their contract requirements. Should that still be a requirement? We don't actually know for certain that IZOD will be back next year, which uh, brings that whole side of things into question as well. So, 
Yeah, I, it would be interesting to talk to the teams to find out how many people would be really disappointed about not going to Brazil to kick off the month of May. Like you said, it just it does seem like an inconvenience. It seems like people want to focus on Indianapolis once you get toward the month of May. It's always and, been sort of the race that's an afterthought, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, which is too bad because it usually turns out to be a pretty good race. But you know, a nobody's paying that much attention. It's hard to get America or you know U.S. media coverage on an event that's two thousand miles away, even if it is close to the same time zone. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it really just kind of becomes a distraction. Um, you know, they, they've moved that date around a few times. It, a couple of years ago, it actually kicked off the season, and then you know lately it's been about the fourth or fifth race. Sometimes it's been the second race. Um, so it's 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 hard to it, it's been having trouble finding a, a place on the calendar, a home, if you will. Um, but I, I kind of have a feeling that not too many of the teams would be ultra disappointed to see that race go away. Right, but if you want to look at the other side of that coin, would you rather race at the beginning of May in Brazil, or would you rather race at the beginning of May at the IMS Road Course, which is the other side of the strong rumor that's uh, that's been circulating for a while now? And uh, how many? I mean, I can already hear the cries of sacrilege from from diehard IndyCar or in, Indianapolis 500 fans. Excuse me, uh, because there is a difference um, saying that starting the month of May turning turning right is uh, at at the hallowed ground of Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Who, I'm talking to you. You would lead this parade. Tell me why it's a bad idea to start the month of May on the road course. You know, I don't hate the idea necessarily, I guess, from the traditional What? I mean, yeah, it's not the greatest thing, but I hate it more from the standpoint it's just a bad race. Mm. <laughs> I, don't, I don't care to ever see <laughs> them on the road course there, not until they do something very, very drastically different to that course. I just, I think IndyCar any time of the year on the road course is a bad idea there. Well, it's funny because there are a lot of people saying that. So um, if they do announce that over the off season they're going to be making some major changes and they're going to be ready for, for a road course race at the beginning of May and everybody looks at the course and says, oh, wow, that's going to be great. You're okay with it then? You, uh, it would be interesting if they would actually pull that off the first weekend of May, because that's traditionally also when the mini marathon is in Indianapolis. And don't you so, think that that's a lot of money to ask from the Indianapolis market in a short period of time? Yeah, I do. I do. I don't know that. Yeah, I think you'd be saturating a little bit. Although, you know, if you can make it a decent deal and, you know, you're not charging Indianapolis 500 ticket prices, Maybe you make the tickets half price. I don't know. Something to, to really just draw it in and, and kind of just get people there. Maybe well, there, you could make there's it work. An, but, you know, there's, but, there's a brainstorming opportunity there because if you turn it into and, – and there are people who are going to absolutely like foam at the mouth at this idea, right? But if you turn it into a month of May opening party where you've got a half-decent band – playing at some point during the weekend at the stage, like like a Carb Day concert kind of deal, and um, give people a reason to show up, then it, there is a possibility that it could work. But, I mean, let's just say you you charge a can of non-perishable food item for admission. Still, how many people are you going to get to show up there on the first weekend of May yeah. for a race there? 
I mean, let, never mind that it's cold usually at the beginning of May. Uh, not the last couple of years it hasn't been. Mm. Like, well, yeah, you've run the marathon the last couple of years, haven't uh, you? Yeah, last year was brutal. This year was a little bit more tolerable. Yeah, there have been some very and yet race day was cold. Yeah, go figure. <laughs> <laughs> but you, I just I don't know. Even if you bring in fifty thousand people. 60, 75,000 people. Do you want to race in front of a crowd that looks like the Brickyard 400? Yeah. Yeah, but then you, if you're racing on the road course, you can make that, that grand dam argument, right? Well, everybody's sitting on the mounds because the stands are a terrible place to see. Mm-hmm. And IndyCar buy, fans buy that argument about grand dam? <laughs> Don't have to buy it. Uh-huh. It can still be made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I just think that... There, there are better options, I think, to run beginning of May. I mean, geez, what if that uh, Fort Lauderdale race ever came to fruition? What if Phoenix ever came around? You know, there. I, I think there are better options than running Indianapolis. Not if they're fighting to get their 17 races together that they need. That's the problem, and that's the whole crux of why the IMS road course is coming into consideration in the first place, right, is because it's easy. They don't have to put together a sanctioning fee. They don't have to make. They don't have to build a temporary street course. They don't have to. They don't have to negotiate with anybody. It's there. It's theirs, and it's easy to to put it together. So that's that's the main reason why I think it's highly likely that we're going to see a race there happen in the near future. You could look at it from the standpoint of yeah, it doesn't cost them. You know, to necessarily race there. They still have to run but, the facility, but it's not the same kind of administration and overhead that running a race at another track is. Right, but if there's any other opportunity that has, you know, revenue coming into the series, I think you have to look at that before you go to somewhere that just doesn't charge. Sure, money. but the problem is there doesn't seem to be opportunity. Well, maybe that's where Circuit of the Americas fits in. Well, and that certainly is still in discussion. Thank you for that lovely segue into. See what uh, I did there? Yeah, that was very, very well done. Don't even have the notes in front of me. (laughs) But we know. I think we actually talked last week about the fact that uh, IndyCar is back in negotiations with Circuit of the Americas. But who didn't speak up this week, other than uh, the uh, the the lover of creating um, controversy, Eddie Gossage? And Eddie's got a point. I think he's got a point. He's His whole concern is that putting a race at Circuit of the Americas, and if you're going to keep the street race at Houston, and you're going to race at Texas Motor Speedway, you're asking three races out of out of the uh, Texas market. I think that's really a lot too much. It may be, but that's a huge market, though. I mean, you're not talking a small state here where Houston... Where right, Houston- but Austin and Dallas are right next to each other. But if we're talking about having trouble getting two races out of the Indianapolis market, I think asking three out of Texas is is getting pretty rich. You can make that argument, but you're not talking – you're talking about the bookends there of Dallas and Houston, who are both in the top, what, six cities in the U.S. I think Houston's the fourth largest city in the U.S., and by the time you put the whole Dallas Metroplex in there – it's got to be right up in the top five, as near the top five as well. There's no excuse why those those facilities that are located, you know, what five hours apart from each other, shouldn't be able to draw enough to stand on their own. Five five hours is nothing. 
five hours is nothing. You serious fans will go five hours without blinking. The problem, well, sure they will. but the serious fans would probably go to both. You know, I don't. But I, that's the question: is is can they afford to? And I guess the other question is how many serious fans are there in Texas? But I mean, I guess the way I look at it is three races in Texas is probably too much. If you're looking at which one is going to go, if you're going to, uh, I'm I'm one person who is of the opinion that IndyCar has no excuse for not racing at Circuit of the Americas. It's absolutely spectacular. It's a world class racetrack in the United States and it absolutely should be like IndyCar should be showcasing themselves on it on the world stage, especially when you've got categories coming from around the world to race on it, to get, to create a benchmark, to, to, to rate themselves by. But then you've got three races in the Texas market and one of them has to go because I just don't think that three races is going to be sustainable. Which one is it going to be? Can it really be Texas? And this is the big argument, right? Because people have been saying, people have been complaining about Texas for the last couple of years, and there's been drama since the race at Las Vegas, basically, about whether IndyCars really should be racing at Texas at all. But it's one of the few oval tracks that's left on the schedule, and can we really afford to be cutting those now? How long is the contract at Houston? We don't know. So these are all things that come into the discussion that that really... Need, I mean, it all needs to be factored into whether any of this can happen at all. And Eddie, you know, it's, I think he's he's got a point that if IndyCar is serious about going to Circuit of the Americas, how serious can they be about still going to Texas Motor Speedway? I still think the the races are different enough. I mean, you've got a high-speed oval, you've got a natural terrain road course, and you've got a street course. And, you know, those are, A, they're going to draw different crowds, to a certain extent, but IndyCars, you know, in other places, geographic regions, they have two races that are fairly close together and they survive. You look at the LA market, they've got Long Beach and they've got Fontana. No, uh, granted, no those are you six don't get w- to make that comparison because nobody shows up for Fontana. It wasn't that bad last year. I mean, it wasn't great, but it, you know, it's hard to judge off of just one year, but I mean, you're 45 minutes apart there. Um, well, if that's the case, then people you, you need to at, stop you, using the attendance argument for telling me that there can't be a race at Cleveland Burke Lakefront. Well, that's where I was going. I mean, look how long they ran Cleveland and Lexington or uh, Mid Ohio together. Really, they ran Mid Ohio and Kentucky, which aren't that far apart. When yeah, you, but those were different times. They weren't that long ago. They were just in the last five years. Well, anyway, we can argue this whole multiple races in a single market thing until our faces turn blue. But, but. It's not our decision, so uh, I guess somebody knows better than we do what to do. So let's move on, shall we? There's one more race rumor that we want to uh, to talk about before we wrap things up for this week, and it's actually somewhat more rumor. At least it's been reported in uh, in newspapers in Baltimore that there's a big event. Um, and pardon me that I don't recall off the top of my head precisely what it was. Some big game, football game maybe or something, happening uh, on Labor Day weekend next year in Baltimore. And so that event venue is apparently going to be moving into sometime earlier in August. Um, and, you know, we've lamented several times the uh, the 
unfortunate situation of IndyCar events being bumped around um, and not finding continuity on the schedule. So definitely disappointed to see this one get moved. But on the other hand, you don't want to be going up against um, other big events in a downtown core. And uh, I guess we found out in this situation which one won. <laughs> Yeah, apparently so. But yeah, you don't want to go up against the NFL in, you know, especially early in the season when things are getting fired back up. If that's what it is, if it is an NFL game there in Baltimore, I don't know. Uh, you know, and the talk had been to wrap up on or around Labor Day anyway. So, you know, this kind of brings us back, I guess, to the whole point of do you want, if you're going to wrap up at Labor Day, do you want to wrap up on a street course? So I think there are a lot of people that don't want to to do that necessarily. So if that's if if you do want to end at Labor Day before you get into the meat of the NFL season, then moving Baltimore earlier in, into August maybe isn't such a bad thing after all. Um, it's not even NFL. I have it in front of me now. It's a college football game. Hmm. Yeah. Well, see, there you go. That's an Americanism. I know you Canuckians don't understand college football like no, we, we do in the States. We really don't. I'll give you that. College football is a big deal here, especially in, I don't know that Baltimore necessarily is a hotbed of college football. I don't know. Is it Maryland maybe playing a, a, a special game in Baltimore? I don't know. I don't know what, what teams would be playing there, actually. <laughs> don't look at me. Anyway. Maryland's not even in Baltimore. There's somebody playing at, at, at M&T Stadium that weekend, and uh, it's enough to want for them to want to move the IndyCar race for next year's schedule. So, all signs point to Baltimore not being on Labor Day next year. Uh, so, these are the stories that we have so far on what the 2014 IndyCar schedule will look like. We will certainly keep you posted as we get closer to Sonoma and closer to an official announcement from the series on what next year's schedule might look like. Speaking of Sonoma, again, as we come around full circle, um, we have some news to share, and this is very exciting news for us in, the, in that um, we've actually received from uh, a private benefactor uh, some income, hooray, advertising income, that we <laughs> will actually be using to, uh, to further our journalism activities at our site. We're very excited for the opportunity to do this. And um, our benefactor has asked that he doesn't actually own a company. He's, uh, he's offered his sponsorship dollars um, from his own pocket. But what he has asked us to do, and we're, we're very excited for the opportunity to do this, is uh, for the three race weekends that we will be able to cover for you at More Front Wing as a result of his sponsorship, he has asked us to, on each of those weekends, highlight a different Indianapolis area charity that, uh, that you can all give some, some support and some donations to if you enjoy the coverage here at Morefront Wing on those race weekends. So we're very excited to get this program started for, for the GoPro Indie Grand Prix of Sonoma. I will be on site for that race as a result of, of uh, this, this longtime supporter and reader support. And uh, we will be kicking that, that off sometime in the next week or so. So we're very excited to let you know that that's coming up. And please do watch morefrontwing.com in the very near future to find out what the first of those charities will be. And uh, let's see if we can get some, some funds together for some great 
some great charities and good causes in the Indianapolis area as a result of this uh, this benevolent um, readers coverage uh, or sponsorship of our coverage for the rest of the season. We're very grateful and we're very excited to to be able to do that. So that's what we've got coming up. Unless you've got uh, anything else that you can think of, Paul, that you want to discuss before we wrap up, I think we've, we're ready to call it a day. I think we're ready to call it a day. Fantastic. Well, we will be back next week. Um, we think we know which driver we're going to be able to talk to uh, for you next week, but we don't want to jinx it, so we're not going to tell you. <laughs> but should be very exciting. We'll be back with driver interviews next week, and uh, it'll be kind of an in-between week, so maybe we'll, we'll um, find some sort of uh, – other things to to discuss and uh, figure out what rumors have been in play in the meantime and uh, get some some interesting topics together for you uh, to to discuss while we wait for the uh, GoPro Indie Grand Prix of Sonoma. But in the meantime, if you need IndyCar news and views, get a grip with more front wing.